The reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dillis. I wonder, have you ever had a conversation with someone, where time is, is getting short and you, you desperately want to say something before you part. So you might, might say, just before you go, I just, just wanted to share this with you. It's something that may be on your mind, something you've been thinking about, something maybe you've been praying about for that person. And you really just want to share it just before you, you go your separate ways. The passage that Dillis just read to us, in most Bibles it's entitled Final Instructions. That's not a particularly helpful title because it doesn't tell us anything that's in the passage itself. But I think we know what what it means. I think if you're married or if you're living with someone in your house, you're probably very aware about final instructions. Just as you're about to, the other person's about to go out, they just want to share a few things, just to remind you of one or two things before they go. Some of you are laughing. (laughs) I am familiar with final instructions, so these are not all related to Jackie, but most of them are. (laughs) Some that comes to mind is, if it rains, don't forget to bring the washing in. That's a fairly common one. If you go out, remember to close the windows. Uh, Don't forget to empty the dishwasher. And the last one, there's a cake in the kitchen, but it's not for you. (laughs) I am familiar with all those instructions. You might have your own list, I suspect. The thing about final instructions is that they're not just random pieces of advice, are they? They they hit the mark. 
They're typically based on what the other person knows about you, and they might be based on some past experience as well. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe I have forgotten to bring the washing in when it's pouring down with rain. Maybe I have left the windows open when I've gone out. And yes, it was me that ate the cake. (laughs) It's usually good advice, isn't it, that the other person is giving you. It's something that they've thought about and they want to share it with you. At the end of 1 Thessalonians, the book that we've been looking at, Paul gives some final instructions to the church, some things he just wants to tell the church before he finishes the letter. He does this with other letters that he writes to other churches as well. And at times we can sometimes think that, well, they do seem to be a bit of a random list, really. Why is Paul giving these particular instructions? Well, I think it's because he's writing to a particular church. He knows what that church is like. And these are things that Paul thinks are important for that church to reflect on. In our passage today, it's a fairly short passage. But in fact, there are 20 separate instructions in that passage. That's quite a long list, isn't it? I did count them all. If someone gives you 20 instructions, you can be sure that they've thought about you quite a bit. And it's probably fairly clear that you're in trouble as well. (laughs) Good grief, 20 things I've got to remember. I'm glad to say I'm not going to go through all 20 of those instructions. That would take too long. I'm going to look at some of the initial ones and I've grouped them into three main areas. All to do with how we can live as gospel people. So the first heading I've got is living as gospel people with our leaders. And this is where Paul starts his final instructions. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. It's easy to criticise leaders or to blame them, isn't it? We see it in the media, we see it in the workplace, we see it in politics. And we're probably likely to see it in sport over the next few weeks, I suspect. If Gareth, if England lose tomorrow, then I hate to see what the headlines would be referring to Gareth Southgate. When things don't go well, it's easy to blame the leader. But Paul says it should not be like that in the church. That doesn't mean that Christian leaders are above criticism, but it does mean that we should recognise the hard work they put in and hold them in the highest regard in love. I think we do that particularly well at Christchurch. I don't think that's a particular issue for us, but we do need to continue to bear it in mind, to hold our leaders in the highest regard in love because of the hard work that they do for us. I think we're probably all aware of the amount of work that people do, often behind the scenes. But it's interesting that Paul does start his list with that, doesn't he? He's been thinking about these final instructions and he starts with leaders. I think it's because it's an important issue and I think it was a particular issue for the Thessalonians. I wonder if Timothy has reported back that some people were moaning about the leaders or maybe the leaders themselves in Thessalonica had said that they didn't feel particularly acknowledged or respected. That would be really hard. That makes their job doubly hard. I suspect that some people in the congregation at Thessalonica were looking down on their leaders. Certainly the Greek culture at the time sort of 
built up their leaders. They wanted them to be outwardly impressive and to speak well and to speak powerfully and to use persuasive arguments. Maybe some of the leaders didn't quite meet that expectation. And so there was a tendency to look down on them. That would be a real shame, I think. We know that sometimes people criticise Paul for not, for not being outwardly impressive. And we know that Timothy often came across as reserved and timid. People were not supposed to look down on their leaders. Maybe they did so because some of them were young, some of them were inexperienced, and some of them were not outwardly impressive. Maybe they didn't come from the right social classes. Maybe some of them were women at the time, which would have been shocking. This is the earliest letter that we have from Paul in the New Testament. The leaders in the church were newly appointed, and the New Testament hasn't yet been written. No wonder Paul tells them to respect their leaders and acknowledge them. The church was facing persecution from outside. The last thing the church needed was opposition from within. Paul starts off telling them to respect their leaders. He then goes on to say, live as gospel people with one another. And that's my second heading. And these instructions, if you're looking at the Bible, verses 14 and 15. So Paul starts off by focusing on how we should respond to three particular types of individuals. We're to warn those who are idle and disruptive. We are to encourage those who are disheartened. And we're to help the weak. So we've got the idle and disruptive, we've got the disheartened, and we've got the weak. I think the idle and disruptive may well have been Christians in Thessalonica who had decided to stop working. I should say this is not because they've retired. (laughs) I've recently retired, but I don't think that's who he's referring to. I think he's referring to people who, because they expected Christ to return any day, decided it's not worth working hard, I'll, I'll just stop and take life easy. Those people are to be warned. We are to continue to work, to care for one another. The second group, the disheartened, may have been those in the church who were grieving or heartbroken. So we know that some people had lost loved ones and were, being, were confused. Those Christians are to be encouraged. And then the third group is the weak Christians in Thessalonica. Maybe these are the people who are struggling some, in some way with their spiritual or personal life. It might be those who are struggling sexually, which Paul has written about in the letter. If so, those people are to be helped. Those instructions are not directed at the leaders. They're directed at every one of us. All of us are called to warn, encourage and help one another where appropriate. And it's that where appropriate is that's important. We've got to get it around the right way. We're not to warn the disheartened and encourage the idle. We've got to get it around the right way. That takes some discernment and some sensitivity. It means understanding what the other person's needs are. Having highlighted those three groups, Paul then says to the Thessalonians, be patient with everyone and don't pay back wrong for wrong. There is a tendency in all of us, I think, to be impatient with those people we find frustrating. There's a tendency to seek revenge for those people who do us wrong. Again, that's not how it should be in the church. We're to be patient and forgiving. And we're to be patient and forgiving because that's how Christ treats us. He has been patient with us and he has forgiven us. And that's how he wants us to treat one another. 
The third heading that I've got is living as gospel people in the light of God's truth and presence. It's verses 16 to 22. And at the beginning of that, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Those are fantastic commands, aren't they? But I do wonder how the Thessalonians might have responded when they heard those words read out to them. At the time, they were experiencing persecution. Some of them had lost loved ones. There were tensions in the church, and Christ has not yet returned. And yet Paul is saying, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm pretty sure at times they didn't feel like doing that. But that's exactly the reason that Paul reminds them to do these things. Paul knows the pain and suffering they're going through. And yet he tells them to do these things. Rejoice, pray and give thanks. They weren't to do that every minute of the day. I don't think that's possible. But they were to do it in all circumstances. Even the circumstances they faced at that time. They were to base their worship on the the truth of the gospel. Some of them might have felt like giving up. Paul is telling them not to give up but to continue. And they can do that because they are gospel people. Because they know the truth that God loves them. Jesus has died and rose again for them. They can rejoice. They can pray. They can give thanks because they know that truth. It doesn't mean that the pain and the suffering goes away. But that deep joy remains. That hope remains. Living as gospel people, I think, means actively choosing to live out God's truth. Despite the circumstances we might be going through, I am going to base my life on God's truth. I'm going to choose to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks, even at times when I might not feel like it. That's not easy to do. That's hard, I recognise. And we do need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. I think that's why Paul goes on next to say, Do not quench the spirit. It's quite a powerful expression, is it? Do not quench the spirit. It's possible to live our lives as if God's truth doesn't affect us. It's also possible to live our lives as if God's Holy Spirit is distant. That's not true. God's Spirit wants to come to each one of us. But the Thessalonians were in danger of quenching the spirit. They were not told exactly how they were doing that. It might be that everything that before they weren't doing, they weren't rejoicing, they weren't praying, they weren't giving thanks. Maybe that was true. But I think it's more likely that it's the following bit, what Paul says. Paul goes on to say, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. I do wonder, were the Thessalonians beginning to treat prophecy with contempt? Some commentators think that Some prophecies were saying that Christ would would have come by now and that hasn't been fulfilled, so therefore we doubt the prophecies. Some commentators say that they were being delivered in ways that people couldn't understand what was being said and so they're beginning to dismiss them. My view is that there was a tendency to see the prophecies as less than supernatural. I wonder if these prophecies were just given by ordinary people in ordinary ways. 
it's not like the Old Testament prophecies where someone would stand up and say, this is what the Lord says. And it's not the same as the apostles teaching with that authority. These prophecies, I think, are given by ordinary people in ordinary situations. Prophecy, to me, is applying God's truth into someone's life. Now, that can happen in any conversation that we have. It can happen here at the front while I'm preaching, but it can happen over coffee as we speak to one another. You know, we can listen to God's Spirit speaking through other people. We're not to dismiss what God might be saying to us because it seems ordinary. I think that attitude can quench the work of the Holy Spirit. God speaks through ordinary people in ordinary ways. He speaks through each one of us, I think. Some of us, hopefully, are gifted in prophecy, but he will speak through each one of us because we're God's children. Instead of dismissing prophecy, Paul says we're to test them. If the prophecies contradict what the Bible says or if they don't build up one another, then they should be rejected. But when we've tested them and found them to be good and true, we're to hold on to them. So these three headings, Paul's final instructions are primarily focused on relationships. And they're focused on relationships within the church. The Thessalonians are to treat their leaders with respect. They're to warn, encourage, help and show patience to one another. They're to continue to rejoice, pray and give thanks together. And they're not to treat prophecy or one another with contempt. I think living as gospel people does impact every area of our life, doesn't it? It impacts what we do at work, it impacts what we do at home, what we do with our money, how we spend our time. But I think fundamentally it impacts how we live together as the body of Christ. Five times in this short passage, Paul refers to the Thessalonians as brothers and sisters. That's not just a coincidence. Paul is stressing that they are family. When we become Christians, we're brought into a new relationship with God, but also with one another. The church is called to be a radical community that's based on unconditional love for one another. Is that how you see Christchurch? I hope it is, because that's what we're called to be. It's fantastic. It's exactly what we've been saved to be, to be that radical new community that lives with unconditional love for one another. It would be a tragedy if we continued to live our old lives as if that wasn't the true. If we weren't free people. I tried to think of an analogy. And this is the best that I can come up with. You can judge whether it works or not. The analogy that came to my mind is, is a prisoner who's been held in solitary confinement for many years. And during those years, his family have never stopped petitioning the authorities to secure his rescue. Eventually, the prisoner is released after many years and he's reunited with his family. He's delighted to give, have this new life given back to him. He's delighted to be back with his family. But if he's honest, he struggles to adapt. He struggles to fit in with his family, having been apart for so many years. He finds it difficult to adjust to his new life. He finds at times that his family is overwhelming And he chooses to withdraw for long periods of time. I think that's understandable. And his family are patient with him. But it would be a tragedy if that behaviour became a permanent way of life. 
It would be a tragedy both for the prisoner and for his family if he continued to exclude himself from others. It would be a tragedy if he continues to live like a prisoner even though he's been set free. I think Paul writes these final instructions so that the Thessalonians can enjoy a new life that they've been called to. To live new and transformed lives. And it's a tragedy if the Thessalonians don't live up to that because that's what they're called to do and to be. Just one final thought. The Thessalonians are to live as gospel people in the context of difficulties and temptations. Paul reminds the Thessalonians to live as gospel people in the midst of the suffering and difficulties that they were experiencing. There were tensions between people in the church and he calls them to respect one another. There were some who were lazy, some who were disheartened, some who were struggling with spiritual and personal issues and he tells them to be patient and kind with everyone. The church was experiencing persecution and some were grieving for the loss of loved ones. It's in that context that he tells them to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. And some of them were tending to dismiss the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in that context that they're called to test prophecy and to make sure they don't quench the work of the Holy Spirit. Those are quite challenging things, aren't they, in the context within which they lived. And it's the same for us. Living out the gospel means living out transformed relationships in the midst of pain, suffering, and conflict as a family. I think that's what it means to live by the way of the cross. I think that's what it means to live as gospel people, to live out the power of the cross and the resurrection. Not surprisingly, Paul ends with a prayer. Paul writes at the end of these instructions, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. What a fantastic prayer but what a fantastic promise. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. We do find church life difficult at times. We do find life difficult at times. But God will do it. God calls us to live as gospel people, living transformed lives in a broken world. I think that's what he's calling each one of us to do this week, to live transformed lives in a broken world. God gives us these final instructions. But thankfully, he is faithful and he will do it. Amen.